have now entered into chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're going to kind of just look at the first three verses, um, though being open and fair about it, we're kind of laying a foundation and a bit of groundwork, um, not so much walking through each individual part of it as much this morning as some of that will take place, but some of that will be a little bit more next week as we go through. I enjoyed this morning singing uh, the song, Jesus, Thank You. Uh, we talked in the Sunday school as we've been going through um, just about giving thanks and about praising God for all that he has done and who he is, just how simplistic that song is basically at its core of just a simple Jesus, thank you. Um, thankfulness is something that I think is tending to get lost more and more that um, I live. It's something that I think there's a lot of, I see a lot of entitlement um, growing up, I definitely, myself, out personal testimony, felt entitled to certain things. Um, you could say that's culture. You could say that's parenting. You could say that's just me, um, younger, being arrogant and proud. And I would say that perhaps all of that could be true. But a simple Jesus just thank you is something that I think we should never escape or try to get away from. In its purest form, everything that a Christian does stems from Jesus, thank you. Um, if we're not thankful for what Christ has done, if we're doing things simply to do them, then we're missing the entire point of any sense of Christian love, of any gratitude, of any thanks for the grace and the mercy um, that any of us have received. And this morning, as I said last week, we're going to be looking here in the next couple weeks at some qualities or some distinctives of true Christian Faith. And we're going to see a lot of different contrasts here over these next couple weeks. Uh, we will look at Paul here. Obviously, he's going on giving his very familiar um, passage about his own resume, about why he has any, every reason to boast in the flesh, but says at the end of the day, it is all meaningless, uh, that it's worthless, that that is not where he is drawing any bit of his value. Um, and so again, this morning, we're going to kind of be setting a lot of the framework for what we're going to see all the way through chapter 3. Uh, one of the biggest things that we're going to see here, um, let's just read these first three verses and then we'll move into it. Uh, but Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. God, this morning we ask that, that we would be receptive to your word, and as we see a contrast of those of, of genuine faith and those without God, I pray that for all of us this morning, that we would undergo an examination of ourselves as we ought to. I pray that you would allow us to be honest and, and objective and that you would truly show us our hearts here this morning, that as we examine your word, that we would not be seeking to justify or to hide anything from you, for we know that there is nothing that is hidden from your sight, that you do see all things and that you do know all things. 
But God, this morning, I pray that you would allow us to see clearly not only the truth of who we are and the truth of our hearts, but the truth of who you are and the truth of your word. And God, I pray that it would be uh, these very truths that your people would be seeking to share with those that are around us that may be lost, those in our own homes, those in our schools, those in the workplace, or even just those that we may come across in any place of business. I pray that as your people, as Christians, that we would be working out our salvation, working out our faith, and that we would have conversations with those that are lost, that we would be ever ready and ever seeking to share the gospel with those around us. God, we ask that you would give us strength and encourage this morning and just the boldness to rightly examine ourselves in light of your word. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said this morning in these coming weeks, we're going to uh, look at some of these different distinctions that are going to be taking place. If you're familiar with much of the New Testament letters, if you're familiar with Paul to any degree, um, I've only been here four or five years, and I know we've spent a lot of time looking at the words of Paul. I know in the years prior to even my moving to Colorado, uh, you guys spent a lot of times with Paul. I think uh, just when I got here or just prior, uh, Pastor Ben had been going through the book of Galatians, Galatians, of Galatians. I have read that book before. I'm a pastor. Um, he had just went through a study in the book of Galatians, and we see some familiar concepts throughout many of Paul's um, letters. And, and one of the reasons I always gravitate to him, and I love his writing style, is he engages a lot with apologetics. He engages a lot with building an argument and building kind of to that crescendo of laying a groundwork and almost this, this pyramidal structure of leading to the true conclusion while also contradicting and bringing out um, this awareness of the false teaching that may be taking place. Uh, we're going to see in these verses as long as well as other cross-references in these coming weeks of the distinguishing marks between genuine faith and those that believe um, to have salvation, that believe themselves to be one thing, but are deceived and often misled. I want you to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 3. We see many texts, not only on the part of Paul, but in conversations in the New Testament where the genuineness of salvation is incredibly uh, important to so many of the New Testament authors, where it's not enough for the New Testament authors and, and for God to just say, hey, as long as you have a loose idea that God probably made something, you're good to go. That means you are genuinely, absolutely saved. There's so much, um, it's such a strict and such a firm understanding of what exactly these things are. We often see Jesus himself. We see the disciples. We see others um, butting up against those who claim to be saved, and then we see a rebuke. But I want us to look here, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Here we find John the Baptist, as many Pharisees even, are coming to be baptized. Starting in verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now you'd say, what does that have to do with anything? 
Um, we see firm language on the part of John the Baptist here. As Pharisees and Sadducees, they're seeing baptisms taking place, and they're saying, hey, I believe in God. We, we want to go. We want to be a part of this too. Where John himself is confronting them and saying, why is it that you are even here? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meet for repentance. We see yet again an actual call for repentance. He's calling them something that I would not suggest you say to your spouse or your boss, calling them a generation or a brood of vipers. Here he is, again, there's distinguishing marks that are going to be drawn in, into place here. The genuineness of salvation is so important, he doesn't just say, well, if you just want to be baptized, that's fine, come on in. Now, I understand that much of this contradicts our current culture of just acceptance of everything, where any kind of lines being drawn, you have to absolutely abandon them, where if you believe firmly on any one thing, um, you're some kind of a bigot or you're hateful. And I understand that as long in our current culture as you attend church at all or you believe in anything spiritual, you get to then fill out on a survey, yes, I am a Christian. We even talked this morning in the Sunday school, like I said, a lot of these things are kind of um, correlating so much together. Where often a loved one passes away and it's just assumed, well, they, were, they went to church with me two or three times. I'm sure that they were a Christian. Or, well, they grew up in the South, so obviously they're a Christian, right? A little bit less so of that in the Midwest, but some of that culture, some of that tradition still is very much at play where you could ask uh, the church that I was growing up in and ask anybody why they were there. The majority would have said, that's just what you do on Sundays. Even some of you may be here this morning with a, well, this is just what we do on Sundays. Ever since I was a little kid, ever since I was a little boy or a little girl, this is what we do. The Pharisees would have often um, tried to take part in any religious ceremony. Oh, another act to go through, another ritual, another ceremony? Sure, let's add that on because ceremonies are good in their mindset. So that John the Baptist himself is keeping them and withholding them from being baptized because he is aware that there is not a genuine repentance and salvation within these people. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 7. Again, these three texts are going to be very, very familiar for so many of you. But here we see the words of Jesus himself in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. If you're like me, when you first heard this verse for the first time, uh, there's a tremendous amount of, in a sense, fear and great seriousness with which you read this. It is not a, okay, but my, the initial instinct is always self-examination. Okay, do I know who Christ is? 17 years I attended church, was there all the time, was a leader in the youth group, Okay, uh, gave one or two sermons as a teenager on Sunday morning, did a ton with the pastor, did so many things. No repentance, no genuine salvation, nothing like that. It was very easy to play a part, to play a role. And I know some of you, based on your life, know absolutely what I'm talking about when I say that. 
We get so trapped into what the image of this Christian is supposed to be. And it is very, very easy to do. But if you're familiar with it, how hard is it to maintain? How hard is it to know each and every time, okay, how do I live in front of this person? What about this person? Okay, this is a lie that I told over here. Now I have to keep it up. Um, this is something that I'm sure some of you have told your kids. Um, once you lie, you have to cover it up with another lie. And then it gets harder to remember which lie you've told to different people. Here, we're seeing something incredibly convicting to the part of so many. Jesus himself is preaching. He is saying, there will be many who will believe themselves to be saved, who will believe themselves to have been redeemed by my work. And they will say, have we not done all of these things in your name? And what is it that Jesus is going to respond? Is he going to say, well, if you thought so, then yes, you must be. He says, I never knew you. And he does not just say, would you like to now? Because by this time, obviously, it's too late. It is depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13 a few short pages later. We're not going to read through this whole parable. But it's the parable of the soils, and we see the seed being spread about, and we see the different types of soils in which a seed can grow, and we see all that is going on. And as he's about to explain it, here's what we find in verses 18 through 23. It says, He, therefore, the parable of the sower. Before we read this, um, I'm just thankful that Jesus answers these questions, gives us the actual interpretation. Um, often you're left going, okay, i got to try and figure this out. But here, like the disciples, he straight up is just giving you the answers. Just to highlight, I think it's awesome. Verse 19, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. This idea of seed being scattered and trampled about where it doesn't ever take any root. Nothing can happen with it. It's just immediately snatched away. Verse 20, But he that received the seed in stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receive it, yet hath he not root in himself, but doeth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by, he is offended. This is the one where it takes a little bit. It sinks in for a short time, but when things start to get rough, the faith tends to go. The seed being planted and where a person starts to hear the things of God, they get so excited, they're puffed up. This is great. Look at all of this. A month later, yeah, I tried that. You know, Then I didn't get the job that I wanted. and you know, I tried Jesus. It just didn't work for me. How many of you have ever heard, oh, I've tried Jesus, or I tried that Christian thing. I tried church as if Jesus is some new diet plan that's going to be changing in a week or two. Simply, yeah, I tried that. Ah, it just didn't work out for me. Now I need something different. Verse 22, He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and take care, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he become unfruitful. Here, the other, where it sinks in, but it's among the thorns, and we see that the love for the world then seems to overtake it, where the person is doing so many things. Maybe they're involved um, for six months to a year. They're actively involved serving in, in ministry. They want to be a missionary. They're going to do all these great things. They're evangelizing. They're sharing all that they know. And then a short time later, it's as if 
it meant nothing, that they're absent. We haven't seen them again. We're looking around wondering, hey, where's Jim? He was our evangelist for a few months. What happened? Love for the world took place. Uh, this is essentially, we can parallel this with, with Demas, as Paul writes to Timothy, and how heartbroken he was as he was faithful in service for so many years, but yet the shipwrecked faith, and we see him chasing after the love of the world in so many other ways. But notice all of these three soils have one thing in common to where it did not truly take root. These are the person believing themselves to be one thing, but yet it is not something that is genuine. We see verse 23, But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. We see a vast distinguishing mark and that this is the soil, that the genuine salvation, the one that is going to be uh, brought forth is the one which brings forth fruit. Notice it does not just stop after who hears the word and understands it. It does not just remain there where the person truly receiving salvation, truly redeemed says, yes, I understand, and sits and remains in hiding for the rest of their life, having no evidence, no display, no, no fruit being brought forth of these things. As a pastor, it's very concerning when I uh, listen to sermons, um, not just done, whether it be locally or within the state, but uh, globally as well. We also, we're all very familiar with um, prosperity gospel and with um, just all the health and wealth and the faith healing and so many things that go around and how troubling it is as a pastor to see this especially when Christian churches are coming from out of America, going over to places like Africa in such great need, and are telling them this heresy that all you have to do is have faith and God is going to, to restore your family. He's going to heal you of your sickness. He's going to, to bless you with great wealth. When all it is is preying upon people in need. How concerning it is to see this. Or to go to a person who is sick and say, well, you know that God absolutely wants to heal you. It's a promise. He wants you to be able to get up and walk again. Trust me, I know that that is absolutely the case. I don't make any claims to know whether God wants to heal a person or not. I can't make any claims to whether you are going to get extra money in your bank account or get the promotion that you've always wanted or move to the state that you've always wanted to work in. I'm not privy to that kind of information. I'm not even sure I would want to be. But so commonly now, there's the understanding that as long as you grow up and you live in America, and as long as you're somewhat of a moral person, you can say, I am a Christian. As if it's a word that doesn't mean anything anymore, much like any other words that we have in our current culture. We're being a Christian Words used to mean something, right? You used to even politically, not to touch on anything touchy, so we're going to skirt around some issues. If you were to ask a person what they would believe politically, they could say either Republican or Democrat, and you could say, hey, I know what you actually believe. Or they could say conservative or liberal or whatever the answer would be, and you knew what they would believe. It used to be you could say, I'm Baptist. You knew what the person would believe or I'm Methodist, you knew what they would believe. I have no clue what anybody believes anymore based on any title. If you guys have a cheat sheet, I would absolutely love to know what these things are. 
Because words are meaningless now. Words don't have any true meaning. It's not as if uh, you can hear a word and you can say, I know what we're meaning. Half of our conversations, some of you have been in these conversations, is defining words. Because how fun is that? How fun is it to just make definitions your whole conversation? Christian now means I attend church, sort of, when I want to. I'm somewhat spiritual. And I don't go around killing people. That's kind of a summary of what Christian means in the American culture. It's this idea that the gate to be a Christian is just wide and so broad, and anybody can just run right through it, regardless of what it is that you believe. Even Jesus, as he talks in Matthew 7, we have the mention of the gate is small. The gate is very small very small. There's a reason that we see John 14, 6, that Jesus Christ himself and him alone is the way to salvation. There is not other ways to salvation, to redemption, to forgiveness of sins. There is no other way. That is an incredibly small and narrow gate to go through. But then we often can say, yeah, the gate is small, but once you get through that gate, boom, it is just miles and miles wide of everything after that. As long as you believe this one thing, that everything else is going to be good. You can do anything else. But what does it say about the road? The road is also narrow. It is not a broad road. It is not wide. It is not one that every person in the world is just walking through and traveling as if it, there is no distinction, as if there is no true meaning to what it is that is taking place. And again, you draw back even to the parable of the soils. We draw to so many different texts. And we see one of the greatest contrasts between the person believing themselves to be saved because, well, you know, a couple years ago, and then they finish a story, to the genuine Christian is a changed life. It is bearing forth fruit. And I understand how this is not something that is often well-received because we don't like to hear, wait, I have to do things? I don't like to do, that's legalistic. If you're saying there's something to do, then that's legalism, and the Bible's all about grace. Every text where Christ is talking about salvation, when he's talking about um, fruit, it's always about these things that we do. And again, that song, Jesus, thank you. Why is it that the Christian does anything that they do? Out of love, thanks, gratitude for what Christ has done, specifically, you know, the pretty big one, like offered redemption for, for sins, atoning for the sins of not only yourself, but of the entire world, dying on a cross, all of these massive things, a debt that was far too big for us to pay. You know, sometimes when I go shopping with Benji, he likes to go to Target. Uh, when he does well, he'll get one of those little $1 toys. It's awesome. I like cheap things. Um, but we'll go and we'll pay for things, and you know, it's okay, ring it up, $60, $70, and he pulls out his wallet, and he's like, hey, I can pay for it. He's got like $2.36, because he has no idea. He just knows he has some money, and that's pretty cool, and it's a Power Rangers wallet, so it's awesome. But he pulls the money out thinking, this will, we have to pay this, I have something, this has to cover it. Now, how many of you, if needing to be owed $70, is going to just say, yeah, $236, that's fantastic, wiped it out and covered? How would your business go if you ran your business this way? He has no understanding of 
how it is, what value money is, and how to cover such greater debt than what he himself could actually pay. But that is exactly what we were singing in that song. Any amount of anything that we have, could do, or could ever give was wholly insufficient to cover the debt that we accrued with our sin. And so we look to Scripture and we see that it doesn't point men and women uh, back to a conversion experience to validate or to affirm or to have assurance for their salvation. Uh, there is no text when a person is asked, um, are you saved? And the person um, says, well, how would I answer this? And Jesus tells them, well, did you tell them about that one experience that you had? There is not that text. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute because I'm very aware. I am not negating any experience, and I'm not negating any professions or confessions of faith that have ever taken place. I'm not saying those are worthless. I'm not saying they mean nothing. What I am saying is that that must then be validated and affirmed by your life, by your actions, by the way in which you actually live, the fruit. You cannot just say, well, yeah, I said I was going to be um, a fig tree one day, and then got nothing but thorns. What does that tell you? Are you a fig tree? Probably not. It's so important that we understand this idea of a changed life. The reason I'm staying on this so much is because in America, we've bought into this lie that you can be a carnal Christian, that you can go to church for two or three hours a week, and that's your spiritual development time. The only time with God is the one or two hours at church, Monday through Saturday, you live as if everyone else lives. You live the exact same way, and that is a perfect tailor-made theology for the American church, for the American culture. We want to have all the benefits that America can offer, all the freedoms to do all these things, all the enjoyments, all the comforts, all the blessings, and then in parentheses, oh, and secure eternity at the same time. But let me hold on to everything else that I have. Because God would want me to have it all, right? Doesn't God promise me all the comforts, all the blessings in life, all the good things that I want? How do you answer the question, how do you know that you are saved? If someone were to come to you and ask you, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you are a Christian? How do you know that you have been redeemed? How do you know these things? How would you answer that question? I think it's an important thing to think about is how it is that you would respond to a person if you were to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they say, well, how do you know that? I think if we were to go around the room, I think the answers would greatly vary. But I think it's an incredibly important one to consider. Oftentimes the response would be, well, I grew up in church and my parents took me there as a kid and we kind of start giving a whole testimony of, well, when I was 5 or when I was 10 or when I was 15 or when I was 75, um, I prayed and asked that God would, would do this. So much of Scripture points to the changed life in a part of a person. When we give our testimonies, do we not share the contrast in our life from what we were prior do we not then share, hey, I used to be this. How do I know that I'm a Christian? I knew what I was prior to Christ, and I see the, the absolute evidence of what it is that he has done since then. How do I know that I'm saved? 
while I'm looking unto Christ, the author, perfecter of my faith. I am moving in a way in which I am trying to be more and more like him, and in the process of that way that is very, very narrow, I don't get to do all the things that my flesh wants all the time, but I still rejoice in these things because he is conforming me more and more to the image of his son. And yes, at times it hurts. Yes, he chastens me as a father would chasten his child, but I absolutely know where I am headed, and he makes that very, very clear. And I look at my life and say, this is not possible without Christ. That answer is far more, far more effective than, hey, I prayed when I was five. I prayed a prayer dozens of times. Dozens of times having no actual repentance from anything. No turning away from the way in which I would live. It was, you know, pray the prayer, sinner's prayer, whatever the case may be, and then run right out of church, start lying again, try to manipulate people, going about things the exact same way. The genuine believer is not the same as a moral church attender. There are tons of moral atheists that hate God. One of the reasons I uh, was very moral as a kid was I just didn't want to disappoint people that I liked. I don't want my parents or my grandparents to be upset with me. I don't want them to be, be disappointed. It's easy to be moral for the sake of other people around us, right? Some of us may have been the same way. Some of us may still be the same way. Well, I don't want to do things, not because I feel like I'm, I'm offending a holy and perfect God if I do this. I just don't want people to look at me differently. So I'm just going to do the right things. I'm just going to be moral. But we've talked at great lengths about the difference between a moral people and a holy people. And so now, just for a few moments, I want us to look here in these verses of 1 through 3 and just gently and lightly see where it is that we're going to be headed. Paul writes to them, Finally, my brethren, this finally is much like a pastor's finally. He's not actually finishing. He's only halfway there. So another reason I'm right there with him. It says, finally, a furthermore or a so then, rejoice in the Lord. Once again, we see Paul encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord. And it doesn't say rejoice because the Lord has done this. Rejoice. The Lord is going to give you this. It is simply rejoicing in him. Just thinking about that for a few moments, truly just rejoicing in the Lord. Even if he's not giving you everything that you wanted. Even on those days where it feels like, God, you've given me nothing this week. He's still giving you breath. He's still giving you a place to live. He's still giving you safety. He still provided you so many different things. Rejoicing in the Lord. Much like we rejoice and we take great um, pleasure and we get great joy even from a small child, a baby, who basically can do nothing for us. Why is it that so many of us love infant children? It's not because they do wonderful things for us. In fact, they often don't do anything good for us. They keep us up at night. They cry. They're very needy. Why is it then that we love them so much more? Compare a baby to a teenager. Now, teenagers around here, don't get sensitive. But a baby can do absolutely nothing for us, but yet we find such great joy in the birth of a newborn child. 
who often causes us undue stress and makes us very tired. And yet, some reason, Brittany wants another. That was just a personal note. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. He's saying, to write these same things for me, it's not any trouble, but it's necessary. It is necessary for him to give a safeguard to protect the Philippians. False teachers had posed a great threat to them. We saw that in verse 27 and 28 of chapter 1. Verse 28 saying, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but you of salvation and that of God. False teaching was rampant in the Philippian church. It was going to be around. It was a danger, just as it was to the Galatians, same to the Colossians, same to the Glenwood Springs Baptist Churchians. It is ever present in any church, in any community, in any place. You, we can never just say, hey, I'm sure everything is going to be perfect, that we don't need to ever beware of any false teaching in any church. We don't need to beware of conversations that are being had. I'm sure everybody here is going to be absolutely perfect and sound in all of these things. Now, does that mean we're to walk around starting yelling at people, calling them heretics, and making them write elaborate theses on everything? No, but constantly we are told to beware of these things, which is not only the role of a pastor but also of elders and of deacons and members as well. Writing yet again the same thing to them was not any trouble for Paul to do. And in verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. The beware of dogs here is not necessarily kind. Um, if you're familiar, uh, dogs were not looked at the way that they uh, are well received so much now. Dogs were wild. Nobody really wanted them as pets. They were picking at everything. Uh, they were very, very unwanted, much like cats. <laughs> for me, I'm looking for the three cat people, but yeah, um, they were not something to be held up in high regard. We love dogs. They're pets. They're docile. They're friendly. They're they're basically family. Our dog is family. Uh, this is not what he is saying. He is not saying beware of those sweet, gentle, innocent um, people that are out there. Beware of dogs. These are the wild scavengers that would plague the cities. Uh, the Jews and Gentiles would go back and forth. Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. It was one of the most derogatory things that you could have called a person. This is very strong language that Paul is now employing as he's talking about this. Beware of them. Um, they're unclean, they're filthy, they were vicious, they were dangerous animals, these dogs were. They were not just sweet little cocker spaniel. And yet he's likening them in the same way to false teachers, that they are unclean, that they are vicious, and that they are absolutely dangerous. Paul is so careful and ever watchful for these people that he is writing to, to urge them to be aware of those that may seek to harm them from within the church. Church opposition from the outside, many of us are very aware of, we're familiar with, and we see it very, very clearly. 
What often tends to escape our awareness is that from within, of those who seek to come in. Again, the sheep in wolves' clothing. This was common in all of the churches that Paul is writing to here. This is common in so many places, which is why it is so important that as Christians and as members of any church, we are sound in our doctrine, that we know who God is, that we study the word, that when a pastor is teaching, we do not idly sit by and go, okay. The Bereans were commended because they sought the scriptures to see that those things were true. And I've always encouraged anybody here to go through, and some of you do this, and some of you I get messages from asking questions or saying, hey, this is what you said. I don't think you meant it this way. But here's a better way that you probably should have said that. And I absolutely appreciate those. Search those things out, whether it's in the Sunday school or whether it's in a Sunday morning service or whether it's something that you come across from a different church, from a different pastor, from a different study. Seek those things out in Scripture. The idea that because someone says Christian, that they're absolutely genuine, I don't think I have to tell you guys. Many of you have lived far longer than me. People are not always honest. That's a lesson I learned very early on in my life. I also know that I wasn't always honest very much in my life. As we go through this, and again, I'm not going to jump into verse 3 and the close of verse 2 because that'll be another 20 minutes. And I'm aware of the time, so we're not going to go into it yet. But he's going to go into this false circumcision, those who had um, placing undue restrictions, saying that you had to be circumcised to be a Christian, that you had to have these Jewish regulations, you had to have all of these other things as opposed to the inner reality. When people say, I'm a Christian, and you ask them why it is, they start to tell you about how they go to church, and they tell you all of the other things, failing to ever say, I know who God is, and he knows me, talking about the actual reality of who they are in Christ. Do you not live differently since Christ has called you out of darkness into marvelous light, since you've been redeemed, since you've come to Christ, do you not live differently or do you live the exact same? The person who lives the same prior to Christ as they do after, very likely, and I would say very certainly, has no understanding of who Christ is. It's a seed being planted in soil that's quickly to be picked away by the birds. You may be excited. You may feel spiritual. You may be really encouraged at times. But we have to know who Christ is. We have to know what he's done. And it has to be that which changes our life. There is a promise of a changed life for the Christian. God does not just say, I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you so that you will stay the same, right? What is the promise? Conform to the image of who? Of Christ. It is not conform to the image of everything that you wanted to be in your life. It is not so that you can remain the same. Christians, we are called out of who we are, old man, to be a new creation, not to remain the same. And this is obviously a little bit different. We didn't walk through each and every verse. We're going to be doing that here in these coming weeks. But so much of what I see all around and so many conversations I see, um, the church overall and in general, has become so passive about what it truly means to be a Christian. We, we've lowered the bar so much that even the person who has no idea, who has never read the Bible, who doesn't even, could not even tell you what the gospel is, they were saying, yes, they know they're a Christian, they're going through, everything is great. The false sense of assurance 
that we can lead people to have, that they believe themselves to be saved, they believe themselves to be passing through the, the narrow gate to heaven, having no understanding of who Christ is and having not truly ever been saved. We see what Jesus says about that. They're going to get there saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? And he is going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. I understand that this isn't popular. I understand it's not super encouraging. I understand that it's something that often is just, hey, let's just not talk about it. Let's just allow it to happen. But the result is allowing those around us that have no evidence, no fruit, no sign of any kind of bit of salvation. We constantly, day to day, allow them to believe that they don't need to repent, that they don't need to understand who God is, that they don't need to hear the gospel, that they are absolutely okay when all they're on is the wide road to hell. And as a church and as a pastor, I cannot be comfortable with that as an understanding. As a church member, as a Christian, you should not be comfortable with that belief, with that understanding. Um, some of our families just came back from, from different countries. And as we, uh, Rob mentioned in the Sunday school, you go to some of these different countries, you see them chasing after idols, you see the way that they worship, you see so many of these things. How could you not be troubled by those things? Knowing those that are lost, that are chasing after something that will never bring them any satisfaction, never bring them any joy, never bring them any salvation. But that's not just in a third world country. That's not just outside of the United States. Trust me, there's plenty of that in Glenwood Springs. It's in Newcastle. It's in Carbondale. It's in Rifle. It's all the way throughout Colorado, even to the Front Range. It's everywhere in the world. There are those who are lost, and Christians are the only ones carrying the true message of the gospel and what Christ has done. But yet often we're getting outnumbered in the streets by Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I had a conversation with a couple people uh, last week. And I said, have any, of you ever, has, have any of you ever had a person come up to you that was a Christian and try to share who Christ is with you? Has anyone ever come up to you and tried to share the gospel with you? I've lived 27 years. Took me a second. I'm getting so old now. Now, one time has a person ever come up to me as a Christian. I've had Mormons come up and talk to me. I've had Jehovah's Witnesses come up and talk to me. Not one time in my life has a Christian ever come up to me to share the gospel with me. I'm only 27. That may be the case for some of you who are much older than me. We talked again before. Spiritual warfare is an ever-present reality. There is a battle that is going on. Now, do we know that the victory is won? Absolutely. But again, we're going to go back to the song, Jesus, thank you. Are you thankful that you have received the message of the gospel, you would not have it without another person being used or without the hearing of the word of God. And yet often we can sit back and say, hey, I'm good, let me sit on my hands, Lord, come quickly. As if there's not a call for us to go to share who Christ is with others around us. Not all are evangelists, I understand that, but if it's such a part of who you are as a Christian, those things are going to come out. Some of you have talked about who Christ is in your workplace. You're not an evangelist, you're a Christian. Continue to have those conversations. It's who you are. It's naturally going to come up. The Christian shouldn't have to force a spiritual conversation. Um, kids all the time in basketball. Again, it's easier for me as a pastor. I get it. Um, how easy it is to talk about what we're studying at church, what we're talking about within the youth group. 
what's going on in the world and how from a Christian perspective we see these things. It is painfully easy as long as you're willing to speak. Speak and make him known. As we go through these coming weeks, we're going to see different distinctives. Paul's going to put himself in the picture, and we're going to draw some parallels from that. Let's pray.